Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with comedian and writer Fiona O'Loughlin to talk about her book, Truths from an Unreliable Witness. Thanks so much for joining us, Fiona. Well, thanks for having me. This is the first big chat I've had about my book with anyone. Oh, that's exciting. We often are the first port of call, which is always a bit intimidating for, for, for me. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Well, not good. Let's... Uh, we'll just choose not to be intimidated either of us. That's a good idea. We'll work <laughs> it out. <laughs> You've got a lot of dirt on me. so <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think I'm starting with an advantage. <laughs> uh, I've been a fan of yours for years, but, um, you know, with having little kids in the last few years, I feel like I've dropped out of awareness um, about what you're up to, but you're up to quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a very intense book um but let's let's start with with the title i think that's a, an interesting way to approach it so it's called uh <clears throat> it's a sort of ode truth from an unreliable witness and it's a sort of ode to your unreliable memory um and as you say it it may not be accurate but it is true mm. um why why did you approach the book like this um, I guess just to frame it as well as I could with my own, um, you know, integrity and honesty <laughs> because it is frustrating how much... I have actually done brain damage uh, to myself. It's the frontal lobe. <laughs> it feels like there's a wet sponge in between my eyebrows and events pop in and out, you know, like my memory's been... I've, I've given my... Um, brain are hiding for, I was in active addiction for 15 years you know yeah absolutely and and it does it the book reads that way there are these moments where you're recounting things and then a particular moment will snap into focus yes yeah. this um be, with beautiful sort of detail about the light and exactly how you're feeling in that exact moment and it feels like I'm there with you and then at other times it feels much more like you're reconstructing things from your your that's, own memory and others. That's where the beauty of having, this is the first time I've ever written in conjunction with someone else. And mm. uh, so Ali Pascoe, who's, you know, younger than most of my children, uh, this beautiful, open-minded girl and very empathetic, empathetic girl. And I, I, she was so necessary to writing this book because <laughs> she, she had to kind of take the whip off me a few times <laughs> <laughs> and kind of be the grown-up as in where where and why and more clinically how it happened and then just allow me to, as you say, focus in on those, you know, I'm a better, I, I, I can be testament to, to the horrors inside of a broader mess, you know? Mm. It it does definitely feel like you've been honest. And I think that is a really hard thing to achieve in a book like this. Because no matter what, when you get right down to it, there are going to be, you know, things that you resent and as well as things you regret. Did you, did, how much work did you do to try or to make yourself look okay in this book? I mean, I, I, feel, I, I feel like you did come out of this book okay considering what's in it yes did, um, did you do a lot of work on that or did you did you just no, kind of put it all out there and just hope for the best i think i was born with a chip missing and i 
eternally grateful for it. There's something I've had deep, deep inside me that I've trusted since I was a kid. And this is that notion that what other people think they know doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I was able to, I've had that my whole life, that understanding. I've just had a, somewhere a very healthy, sounds crazy because I had an alcoholic mind, but there's some base level of a very healthy self-esteem in me when it's not been adapted. <laughs> various methods I've chosen over the years. So. <laughs> Very hard. So I, did, I just thought, look, just be honest and tell the story. The, the purpose of the book had two, you know, there were two purposes. And one was to explain myself to, to the people who love me and who I love in return. Um, almost right up to and including my husband, you know. Uh, and the rest of the book, I only had one woman in mind, and I don't know who she is, but she's a relapsing alcoholic. And it is the relapsing part of the disease that is the most agonising, um, particularly if you have committed to recovery. You know, I never lived in... For someone who bags Dr. Phil, God, I fall back on a few of his lines, but <laughs> <laughs> I never conceded defeat to the disease, as in I never sat in a front bar for 15 years and said, piss off, I don't have a problem, you know. Every time it was, every time I relapsed, I dusted myself off and did everything that was required of me. And, and there's a parallel um and that was tricky because, you know, families all have something. Everyone has something, you know, behind their fence. And my own family, um, you know, we have something going on at the moment. It's not my, you know, I've already offered my body <laughs> and mine for pickings. <laughs> so it's not my um, story to tell, but it involves, you know, I'm the mother and I'm a matriarch and I'm well. And I'm just like, right, I'm going to clear my deck and then, you know, live this life as a writer and a communicator of anything and everything that I've experienced, starting with alcoholism. So I, I yeah. guess I felt very much crazily in a powerful place when I wrote it and still do. Yeah, I, I, I loved that you, it clearly... At the very end of the book, you, you have like a PS, PPS, PPS. Oh, yeah, that was so real too. I, I liked it because it felt like, it felt very real to my understanding of how, you know, well, it actually come, was come very together. Real, and I didn't know if those PPSs were going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like you were, were sort of at that point of ready to let go and then yeah, not quite able to actually let go. Is that is that accurate? Exactly. It is the worst, worst, worst moment of a memoir is the, that moment where you say goodbye, hand it over, too late. That's said forever. <laughs> but, yeah. and, then I only, and then I didn't look at it again and I only picked it up and read it because I'm a quick reader, I love books, and I picked it up with a, you know, as, as um, objective an eye as I could give it. 
And it was hilarious. I was reading and I was going, holy crap, even I can't wait to find out what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is it is really funny. Despite despite how dark it is at times, it's amazing how you have managed to work in so much of the humor you you know. Because, because at the time there was actually humor there, you know. Mm. Yeah, and I've never um, bothered, and thank God I haven't. Uh, nor have many of my sisters bothered to separate those um, feelings happening in this, at the same scene, you know, within the same scene. Mm. Like it looks terrible. Fiona's lying on the bed, and she's just tried to kill herself. But isn't it hilarious that we all have to call her Marjorie Tethers? <laughs> it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be funny. <laughs> Well, there's a beauty you get through being older too, where you can levitate and look up above the world, you know, your own nonsense, nonsensical part of the planet, and, and absolutely laugh freely at it. I could never laugh freely at it when I still didn't feel free of it. And I waited and I knew that it was, as soon as I went to rehab, I knew that I had enough uh, knowledge to put this in action, but unfortunately, I didn't have another person. You know? mm. And um, I've Sue, who I write about in the book, because uh, we're cracking on with the third book now, well, I am, because so we almost stumbled across a model of recovery that's quite uh, explicit, or, well, quite specific to a woman wrapped with guilt with alcoholism. I'm sure there's plenty out there. Mm. But the answer, particularly a single woman, it's a big job, a, a, a life-threatening disease. It's a very big job. Yeah, you do seem to have found a way to formalise that relationship and uh, of, of having someone to help you. I yeah. think that's what it seems like. Because guess what? It worked. And... Yeah. You know, it's interesting, there was a story in the paper the other day, and of course you've got a cop all of this, but once you find that your purpose is a bit bigger than just little old me, because I don't care much, I mean, I love this book and I, you know, really hope for its success because I kind of, I felt at the start of COVID that I don't think I'll ever go back to that life. You know, it just felt like a different time and I would love to, perform less on stages and, you know, write more. But um, it was this feeling, I totally forgot where I was going. Yeah? <laughs> it, it, that, that sense of at the beginning of COVID, um, I think that a lot of us felt sort of like we were turning a page in our lives and this, you know, there would be a before this and an after this. So it's yeah. an interesting time to, oh, to put saying. a book out like this, isn't it? Yeah. So I've, COVID for me has just been the happiest time of my life, you know. Once you kill your ego and uh, replace that with gratitude, I know it sounds so corny, but it's true. It's true. <laughs> That's the answer, as it turns out. Anyway, um, so I'm, I'm fairly um, thick-skinned with this book and its contents. Um, not, I don't want to be blasé, I've still got to walk a fairly tricky, you know, path. But 
it was really interesting that the way that that story came out the journalist uh, wrote a great piece but then grubby editors get their hands on it and turn it into something else and anyway so I had this headline I can't remember what the headline was but it wasn't good and then but we spent the day uh, in a lovely house with beautiful sunlit windows light streaming in and there was photographer there, hair and makeup to for lots of happy smiles. But they've darkened out the windows and they've put in a put a photo of me looking like I'm ready to knit myself again. <laughs> and I'm like, you bloody idiots, you missed the point. You know, why yeah. crowding this subject with shame when it doesn't belong it has no place in this particular story. Yeah. You you do that work in the book. You don't yeah. need the journalist to do that work. And that's why I've run with a picture of me, I don't know, lying in the gutter. It's just not, it didn't match with what the narrative is. Yeah. You talk about that a fair bit in the book, this idea, of, and I think it's really true, this narrative that um, the, the country, especially Australia, has around alcohol, alcoholism and the stories that are allowed to be told about alcoholics, particularly mm -hmm. women. Mm. Um, did you, was that something that um, you realised, like, I mean, you've known you're, you've been an alcoholic for a long time, but how, how recently do you think it was that you really realised how differently you were being treated? Um, well, you don't realise any injustices against you until you're sober, you know, because you take anything on personally as one more reason that you're the problem, you know? Mm. But with a broader lens, you know, this book finished in real time. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I think, I think I'm a completely different person. Um, feels like it. But then I had the power to go, you know what, you know, I've been bellyaching about it internally, about how insensitive people are, particularly culturally big drinking people are to alcoholics. But then I'm like, well, that's life. You know, people are culturally insensitive, insensitive about a lot of things they don't realise they're being insensitive about. Um, like the childless women from the ages, you know, I've got a sister at the moment going through that time in her life where there's no babies. She just didn't get married, it didn't happen, but she wanted it. Mm. And it's extraordinary when you put yourself in her shoes how cruel society is because they're invisible, their pain, even their sadness it's just completely invisible you, you could have a grief-stricken woman at your barbecue you don't even know it so i decided for me to create my own existence within and around the big culture and it's up to me to save my life so i have mm. i take very i'm very 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 careful with who i let through the door <laughs> 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 but now you've written it all down and we all get to walk through the door. <laughs> I don't want less people, I want more, but I don't, I can't, you know, I'm a codependent, I say things people want to hear. I've even got to be careful not to talk on the phone too much. Yeah. Or, or I'll agree to being at a barbecue on Saturday that's full of people that I used to drink with. You know, it's just nonsense. You wouldn't do that if you had peanut allergy, wouldn't you? You can go to a mask Yeah. That's, that is one of the really hard things about it, I think. It's just endemic in the culture, isn't it? It's yeah. so hard to escape. You have to change your whole life to get away from it. 
But then for the person that does save their lives, you know, shut up the rest of you. Um, yeah. You know, we don't just stop drinking and and nothing changes. There is an, I think there's an added responsibility to the, and I think I said it in the book, to the 90% of the drinking population that can drink with impunity. Somehow, the lives it destroys, there has to be some recompense. I'm not saying I'm going to go sue Smirnoff or whatever I call it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's got to be more, le- le- you know, there's got to be more consideration and 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 help for recovering addicts. Yes, and empathy. I was in a lucky position myself that I have a craft that I can reassemble and do, but I even understand now that it's really not a good, it's not conducive to my health to be in and out of RSLs for the rest of my life, you know. Yeah, so uh, that was a, a, definitely something I wanted to ask you about. You say in the book um, that your sort of carnival family, I think you, you refer to them, uh, uh, were actually not, were some of the most supportive people about um, your decision not to drink. Um, but the actual culture of, exactly. you know, stand-up comedy is so just and I was, absorbed in alcohol and not just alcohol. It's like soaking in it. You're soaking in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really stubborn. I reckon you'd find interviews up to six months ago where I'd say, no, no, that was never, but it is. It's common sense that if you're going to sit in a hair barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It must, I can't imagine. There's parties that I absolutely love because they have no... Um, uh, there's no, what's the word, um, connection to me. Uh, it's like anything, you know, giving up smoking even. There's things that will trigger that, where you did it, how you did it, why you did it. Um, but I can, I love nothing more than having my children with their friends, you know, around me. And I don't care what they do. <laughs> Up to within maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Because I have no history embedded in my memory of ever drinking with them. So that's an e- that's an easier context. It's the most easy space I can be in. You know, that's heavenly for me. And yeah. And in some ways, I'm ever so grateful that I am alcoholic and not just. You know, I think, gosh, if I had not been an alcoholic and just been one of those boozy women. And, that, and there's a, there is a difference. Um, yeah. There's so much I would have missed because I wouldn't have been present. I wouldn't have been paying attention. You know, I would have led with my ego and loved long lunches and, you know, peacocking. And, yeah, to have this kind of quieter, even to have something like a book launch amidst the quietness and the you know, the whatever you're supposed to get to in your age, where I finally think I've got to, that peaceful part of your life is heaven. Yeah. You describe the, in the book yourself as, uh, as it being a story of dinner tables, which I think mm. is really um, nostalgic or something for me, I, I guess, because I feel it's particularly coming from 
big Catholic family, which um, I didn't, but my mother did. So I, I feel this affinity for the way you describe how you grew up and how you developed your comedy. Well, and, then, and then coming to, to, to this quiet place now where you, you're no longer the queen of the dinner table, I guess you, yeah. say, you say at one point. Yeah. Is that, was that a conscious like uh, spine that you put into the book or did that just come out of the writing? It actually came from Ali, I think, from my telling of tables. Yeah. She yeah, it's, it's great. Ali would pick up on these things and then just underline them, and they became a beautiful place to play and be a bit fancy and poetic. And because I do love writing, <laughs> it it feels it feels very true to life. It's something that is um, that could easily go unnoticed. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that, that even for you it has some kind of connect because that's where the stories were told. That's where we, you know, the dinner table was where the drama went down in all its beauty and ugliness in every home. Yeah, and that, that sense of, um, you know, you know the, the beginning of the stories about your young life and how your family dinner, dinner table, your, you know, your family was very conservative and it was very quiet. Yeah. And then the the huge difference that you experienced when, when you, husband's yeah. family. Uh, and I, I heard that exact story from my father going to my mother's family. Really? And, uh, and then they're divorced. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting. I think that there is something to that, that feeling like quite in, when you go into a big family experience, that's, that's really joyous and angry and, and oh, happy and, uh, and, and can talk to each other about things and not hold grudges. And it's, it's, it's like an addiction, life. isn't it? Yes, it is. Because ours was more like, I don't know, bitch about each other behind our backs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all looks. But this family, yeah, they were so much more. Yeah, they'd been through a big grief of their own. And I think Ivan, the father, my father in law, um, just that was his way of keeping them close, you know. Uh, he, he he became very liberal in his inside his very rigid writing himself, you know. Yeah, and it comes across, I think, and and then the 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 sense of you wanting to recreate or um, the kitchen table in your own home, even though you didn't want to be at the actual table. I know. Yeah, and that that pendulum just keeps swinging too because then one of my kids is like, that's why I had a bloody eating disorder because we never sat down normally and ate food. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely. I mean, I, who was it that said? Um, I think it was David Bowie. Your parents fuck you up no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're going to screw them up somehow, right? So. Yeah. And I think there is a collective. Um, I've been talking about this bit but it didn't really form and I every, every time I was like oh don't worry third book but I think there is a collective trauma of anyone um born my vintage and older um and it's interesting that we've seen so much change you know me too and gay rights and we were in that yeah we were the brothers and sisters of those people who were hurt so badly um, and, and we were under, still under the reign of an era where quite by their conscience, quite rightly, 
not much room for dissent. You know, if your origins of your family are very religious, their job is to get you to heaven, you know. But so a lot went, I, I just think we're bruised fruit and it's not bad news, it's good news. It means that we've seen the better way in this generation of kids, I think. Any kid that's born on the bright side of the road to anyone born without idiot parents are much safer than we were from with their self from everything from their physicality to their self-esteem we now know that children need to be told that they're worthy and valuable and hugged and loved and i love you is good mm. so i think i'm so excited to see because i only hang out with and it's not because i'm groovy it's because i as i said i'm very cautious i only really mix with people i work with and that is I've been working with 30 year olds for years. Basically, that's the age group of my peers. So it's all I really witness. Um, and I love what we've created. What, and it's not us personally, it's just humanity's evolved. That's such a refreshing point of view to have. <laughs> I can't tell you how excited I am because I know like the sun comes up tomorrow, but in 20 years from now, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 30. What did I just, I just had a birthday and I've already forgotten. My birthday. <laughs> my <age>. 37. <laughs> my oldest is 34. And he kind of represents what I know to be the norm, you know, mm. and it's incredibly cool. They're the best people I've ever met. <laughs> so I reckon 20 years from now, you'd be looking at candidates that look like more, look like um, Bill Gates than bloody, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah. I think this, I'm just sitting back and watching the fireworks. It's hilarious because the suits are going down and they're going down fast. Yeah, and it feels like even more so looking, my youngest brother is 11 years younger than me and I, I see the way that, how excited and passionate he is and I already feel well, it as being different. And my, you know, my son who's five, I can see there's a different way in which he's experiencing the world than I did. Yeah. Um, it, do, it does feel like there's real progress sometimes. And there's so much hope and, and we've got a lot to fix, but I, my generation, you know, and it came out in me of, you know, in alcoholism, but I think in many ways, having bore witness to the kindness and then, because that's what it has been generally in the Western world, is it, an evolution of kindness on the level we haven't seen mm. and to be part of that and to know that that's where the world's heading you know i just sit back and enjoy the because good always I mean, what have humans ever done but thrive i mean we do leave it to the last minute but we'll be right yeah do you think religion has anything to do with it i'm sorry to pivot back to your book but um <laughs> you do you do talk about catholicism a fair bit and because you're you're one of your final PPSs is, is a sort of I don't I don't hate Catholicism. <laughs> uh, exactly, I don't. But I don't think being being an active Catholic or it requires you to be against so many things, you know. And I think if we all just stop being against so much and start listening more, I don't want to be against anything. So I don't have room for that. And also it's very scary and I don't have room in my head to be bothered with how, whether I'm going to hell or 
heaven or hell. You know, it's too much and I won't do it. Yeah, it does. It does feel like um, Australia, at least, has changed its relationship with religion within a couple of generations. I'd go back to mass if they just do some great hymns and we could all do yoga. Yeah, uh, my uh, my <laughs> mum says the. I think my mum says almost exactly the same thing. She grew up Catholic and <laughs> and and has left, but <laughs> still misses. Probably, I think the. <laughs> you miss the community. It's it's a culture. Yeah, and the ritual. Yeah, and. You know, let's have a keynote speaker, really great Catholics. It did good. I think the clergy got to sit back and earn their way back in. I don't think there's any room for them. They don't make sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, so if they had to get back, you'd take your money out, wouldn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of Catholics have done exactly that, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> said already that you're working on another book um can you tell us anything about it yet or is it it's still in its infancy it's less of it's more about recovery and stories of recovery and so it's obviously way better because i've done all the hand-wringing i need to do on the darkness of this um but all the way to god if i have my I somehow want to combine my comedic abilities with, um, God, I, you know, what I'd love is a, a reality show of my own, this new model rehab. <laughs> Let's do it all at once. So, yeah, I've got ideas bursting out of me, and all I have to do is write them down and stay calm. Yeah. Well, it sounds, it, it sounds like um, you're onto something <laughs> one way or the other. I hope the next, I hope the next book um, is, you know, forms, yeah. but um, more importantly right now, I hope the current book does really well. And I hope, um, you know, all the publicity that I'm sure you're going to do is uh, treat, treat you kindly. Well, if I've um, got people like you on board, Mark, how can I go on? <laughs> but, um, I think we're going to have to leave it there because even though uh, I could probably talk to you about this book for the rest of the afternoon, um, oh, I've got to let you go. But uh, thank, thank you so much for taking the time. It's such a uh, fascinating book. That's such a cool way to get into it. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, and uh, if you're listening, you can buy Fiona's book, Truth from an Unreliable Witness, either at your local bookshop or from booktopia.com.au. And um, thanks again so much for joining us, Fiona. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.